Can you please use that voice? <laughs> My Mickey Mouse voice. Sorry. Okay. Ready? Yep. Okay. Welcome to Athens Happens. I'm Bo Kuhn, senior digital producer at The New Political. And I'm Izzy Keller, digital editor. Athens Happens is a podcast brought to you by The New Political, a student publication dedicated to explaining the nuances of Ohio University, Athens, and state politics. You can find new episodes on Monday at thenewpolitical.com or wherever else podcasts can be downloaded. Um, I just wanted to put a quick content warning out there before the episode starts. We're going to be talking about sexual violence and sexual harassment in this episode. If you are triggered or bothered by any of those things, uh, consider clicking off. And I also wanted to say that alongside this episode, there's going to be infographics and information that you can look at because it is a complicated process and it can be hard to understand just from listening to us talk about it. This week, we're talking with news editor Maddie Harden about the sexual violence reporting process at Ohio University for an upcoming collaboration between the New Political and Ohio State's The Lantern. How are you doing, Maddie? I'm doing lovely. Thank you for having me. No problem at all. Um, so, Izzy, you're kind of the expert on this topic. So I'll just kind of let you start it off. Yep. I guess I would be. I wrote the article about it. Uh, about a year ago for uh, the new politicals. Um, it was like a spring project, right? Yeah. So um, this is kind of, it was just talking about the um, Title IX process. The It's actually called the like sexual misconduct grievance process because it's not all always relating to like, you know, Title IX because Title IX, you know, changed a lot in the past like couple years. But um, basically, um, we're going to kind of take you through the process and, you know, talk about it. But this is going to be like a summary because this co- this process is extremely complex, kind of complicated and um, very long. So um, you want to get started with it? Um, yeah. So uh, I guess first, Maddie, do you want to talk about the the project between you and or between PNP and the Lantern? Yeah, I'd love to. Um, so this project started off, uh, you know, I was reading a lot about the red zone and I was thinking, you know, we've been doing a lot of more collaborations recently with other publications. And, you know, the one thing that's the most prevalent on every single college campus, no matter where it's located, is sexual violence. Um, so I reached out to a couple universities about, you know, other university, um, student pubs about a collaboration and the Lantern got back to us and we've been working for the past couple of months. We sent out a survey, we've been doing a lot of research, putting together a lot of data. Um, there's a lot of people involved in this and it's super awesome to see all these people working together and I'm really excited to see how it all comes together. What are you most looking forward to when the project is finally released? Um, I'm excited to see the visual display of all the data that we've had. Um, and also it being done. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's been a, such a long process. I mean, I've loved every step of it. Um, but yeah, it's just like grueling and it's it's a hard topic to cover and to like be constantly thinking about. Um, but I think in my like interviews and people I've talked to, um, it's given me a lot more hope about the whole situation. You know, 
um, I've personally become more aware of a lot of like the resources that are offered and, you know, things that are, you know, my role as a bystander. And I'm excited to be able to share all these findings with, you know, Athens community, the Columbus community and so on and so forth. And um, I've been I just by talking to you and hearing about what you've been working on and working on the project as well. Like, I know that you've learned a lot of really you've interviewed a lot of people and you've learned a lot of um really interesting things. What is like the most interesting or shocking thing that you've learned throughout the reporting process and while working on this project? I think even like beyond the reporting, the reporting process is that it's so underutilized. And with that, that, you know, those required trainings that goes into prevention that every student has to take is like, one of the least effective means of educating people on prevention. I mean, it fill, it checks a box, um, but it's not enough. And you know, along with that is the open-ended question from our survey, like opened my eyes a lot because it's like, wow, like I'm, I'm not the only one who feels this way or like, wow, like it's insane to see like some of like the outrage that students have about this and there hasn't been much change over like the past decades. Like it's the same trainings, it's the same processes. Um, yeah, I just, it's interesting to see students like really speak up and speak out about things. Sexual violence means that someone forces or manipulates someone else into unwanted sexual activity without their consent. Reasons someone might not consent include fear, age, illness, disability, and or influence of drugs or alcohol. Anyone can experience sexual violence, including children, teens, adults, and elders. Those who sexually abuse can be acquaintances, family members, trusted individuals, or even strangers. And then sexual misconduct. Um, sexual misconduct, according to Clark College, is a type a of sexual misconduct is a type of violence that uses power, control, and or intimidation to harm others. It includes sexual harassment, sexual assault, domestic violence, dating violence, and stalking. It occurs when there's an absence of consent. And consent is a free and clearly given yes, not the absence of a no, and it cannot be received when a person is incapacitated by alcohol or drugs. When we are talking about the sexual harassment and other sexual misconduct grievance process, we are pretty much talking about two different um, policies. There's university policy, and that policy is 03.004, but for purposes, so I'm not just saying a whole bunch of numbers, I'm just gonna say university policy, and uh, Title IX. And Title IX is a federal piece of, is it legislation, is that the right word? Mm -hmm. It's a federal piece of legislation that Maybe regulation would be technically more accurate, but I'm not sure. Regulation would be a better word. Yeah. <laughs> but it's a federal piece of regulation. All schools, education systems, schools, anywhere, must, receiving federal money, must pretty much ensure the equality of all students regardless of sex so like that includes you know public k-12 through schools universities ohio university you know basically all ensuring that nobody faces any discrimination that would hinder their education on their basis of, on the basis of sex so those are the two like 
pieces of legislation or regulation that pretty much go into this process. So um, it's, um, since it's such a long and complicated process, uh, I've always thought it best to break it up in the four parts because that's how my mind works is it helps me to break things up. So there's the pre-investigation, the investigation, a hearing, and then a post-hearing. And then um, also for clarity's sake, in this, uh, in, while I'm talking about this, I'm going to be using the language that um, is used in Title IX and used in the process. So um, I'm just going to clarify that really quick. A complainant is somebody who is bringing forth a formal complaint. So that is typically somebody who has had some type of sexual harassment, sexual misconduct portrayed against them, and they're bringing that, that a claim that something has happened. A respondent is the person who that claim is against. And um, an advisor... And this is going to become more um, prevalent, like it's going to be more um, pertinent when we're talking about the hearing. But the advisor is somebody who assists their party, whether they are a complainant or a respondent, with helping to prepare materials for a hearing, you know, drafting questions, and then they confer with the party during meetings. So it's kind of like an attorney, even though it doesn't have to be an attorney, it can be anybody. But that's kind of some basic like terminology. So, uh, do you have anything you want to add, Maddie, before we get into the pre-investigation? Um, yeah, just like clarify, just to clarify, um, what an what an advisor is like. Couldn't advi couldn't an advisor be like another student? Is it? It could be literally anyone. It can be literally anyone. Wow. I can read. I have right in front of me. This is the um. It's a document that you can find on the ECRC website, and the ECRC is the university. Equity Civil Rights Compliance Office. Correct. Um, they're the people who, you know, basically take on all civil rights or Title IX claims, and they're the people who investigate and, you know, have, like, the trials and stuff like that. That's what they handled. The Title IX office is located within there. But they have a um, document that goes through the process. It is 40 pages, and um, it is called the sexual harassment and other sexual misconduct grievance process and in it it has a definition of an advisor it is two paragraphs and it is uh for by them the job of an advisor is according no wait i'm sorry the definition of an advisor according to this document is the advisor may assist the party by helping to prepare materials draft questions and confer with the party during meetings and hearings, as long as this does not unreasonably disrupt or delay the process. The advisor also represents the party by asking questions on the other party and witnesses at the meeting. Um, however, the advisor may not take statements on behalf of the party. The advisor may not be, no, I'm sorry, excuse me. The advisor may be any one of the students choosing, including, including the advisor may be any one of the students choosing, including a, an attorney. If a party does not have an advisor to the question, does not have an advisor to question the other party and with witness at the hearing one will be appointed to do so by the institution and the institution is ohio university mm. so it's like an attorney sorry okay gotcha but it's not technically an attorney because this is not technically like a, not a legal case it's not technically a legal case but yeah. the way that it's set up and this is nothing to do this isn't ohio university you know coming up with this idea this is federal this is all college campuses that receive federal money all public universities high schools all that stuff but um it the way that this process is set up really mimics a trial like a like a full-on trial and i think that and i'm trying to remember off the top of my head but i remember when this these changes were first brought up uh 
Betsy DeVos, the then Secretary of Education, would, you know, say that this process was, you know, changed in order to protect the due process, due process, yep. to protect due process and, you know, all that stuff. So that's kind of why I think that it, it, that's a little bit editorial, but that's kind of why I think that it mimics a trial a little bit. It's because it's trying to protect due process. It is essentially designed to mimic a trial process without actually being a legal case. Yes. All right. So let's get into it. Um, so the process begins, well, for breaking up the process, it begins with pre-investigation. Everything begins with a complaint made by someone to the ECRC. It can be anybody. here, The person who's experienced something. It could be a close friend, um, anybody, someone on the street, a stranger saying, hey, I heard this person, you know, talk about this. But um, if you are a mandatory reporter and all Ohio University employees are, they have a requirement to um, report instances of sexual misconduct. So that includes, you know, faculty, staff, student employees, everybody. There's a group of people who do not, who are not mandatory reporters. That is like, you know, counselors, you know, people working with, um, you know, sex, uh, what is it called? Survivor's Advocacy. Yeah, SAP, Survivor SAP. Advocacy Program. Yes, yeah, uh, people working with SAP, counselors. Um, the Title IX coordinator can set certain events to not, you know, meet that kind of like mandatory reporter you know di distinction but um because the complaint is made to the ecrc that's not really the formal start of the process but once somebody makes a complaint to the ecrc it is followed by a meeting where um the ecrc will uh where the ecrc will offer support services discuss different options and explain the process but the most important thing to know about this kind of part is whether or not this person wants to file a formal complaint. The formal complaint is the beginning, the true beginning, the formal beginning of this process. So if the person decides that they do not want to file a formal complaint, the support services will continue, but the Title IX coordinator can determine to file and sign a complaint, but that is pretty rare because it's hard to make a case when you don't have a complaining, a complainant. But if, if a complainant wants to file a formal complaint, they can do so, and then the process continues. But it's important that the Title IX coordinator needs to sign the complaint in order for it to really kind of start. So, uh, so let's say we go forward with the complaint. What yeah, happens? so if actually first, if no, uh, like the there's if there's no formal complaint the person uh who uh the the victim i guess uh would still continue to receive support like the res the support they get from ECRC yep but not but there would be no moving forward from that point it would be essentially over as far as the university is concerned it's it's completely over they would receive supportive measures you know that's campus counseling you know a no contact order has been pretty popular i remember carrie griffin telling me that in an interview okay. you know changing campus housing work schedules um academic support and that's just kind of like some of the options that are available there can be more anything you know can probably be a support system if they think it would be a support measure if they think it could help but um 
you know, they would still receive those um, measures if they decide to not file a formal complaint. It just, it wouldn't move forward. There would be no process. It ends there. And then, so this complaint, this complainant, um, if they decide to, no, I do not want to file a formal complaint, the Title IX coordinator can still just file one and go right ahead with it? Yeah, if they think that there's, like, I think that... So is there really a choice? I mean, I just don't think the victim would be involved. Mm. The complainant okay. would not be involved anymore. It would be... That's why it would be such, so difficult to make a case if you were... If the Title IX coordinator were to sign a uh, formal complaint and not have somebody else there, if that makes sense. So I remember uh, Carrie Griffin also saying um, that it's pretty rare for that to happen. Like, we already I'm, mentioned that Carrie Griffin is the Title IX coordinator. Have we? I can't remember. But just in case we haven't. Carrie Griffin is the uh, Title IX coordinator at Ohio University. She, um, I interviewed her probably about a year ago for my first story. And, um, you know, a lot of the information that we're going to be talking about today comes from that story that I, that I originally wrote. And it's going to be coming from my interview with her. So let's say that uh, a formal complaint is filed. Uh, what happens next? So what happens next is a notice of investigation is sent to the person um, who the complaint is against. So that would be the, res in this terms, it would be the respondent. They're the ones responding to the complaint. Okay. Just so they know that there is an investigation on them. It's a notice of investigation. After the notice of investigation has been sent to the respondent, um, you kind of go into an investigation phase. But before that, it is important to know that the Title IX office can determine whether or not a case can be dismissed under Title IX throughout any point of the investigation. So what does that mean? The, um, because of the recent changes to Title IX, what counts as a, a Title IX violation is very narrow. So certain things that maybe should be a Title IX violation or does hinder the um, education, you know, it does count as like, um, that should be a Title IX violation, don't necessarily count as a Title IX violation. Some things that count as a Title IX violation don't necessarily count as a Title IX violation. So that doesn't mean necessarily that the process is over. People, um, if somebody commits an act, an act of sexual misconduct and it doesn't count under Title IX, they can still be they can still be brought through the process under university policy. So um, that's an important distinction to mention. Some of the let me go through my notes really quick. So According to some documents on the ECRC website, a complaint can be dismissed under Title IX if the offense was not sexual harassment, if it did not happen in or during an educational program or activity where Ohio University has control, if Ohio University does not have substantial control over the respondent, if the offense did not occur in the United States, and slash or the complainant is not participating in or attempting to participate in the education program or activity of Ohio University. So that kind of closes out the pre-investigation and then we go straight into the investigation part of it. So um, when 
the definition or when the title when title nine was updated a few years ago they changed the definition of sexual harassment to be much more specific because it used to be just unwelcome conduct of a sexual nature and now it's considered unwelcome conduct that a reasonable person would determine is so severe pervasive and objectively offensive that it effectively denies a person equal access to the school's education program or activity. So that, to my understanding, would be one of the determining factors of, of if something is considered a Title IX violation or not. Definitely, yeah. Um, as well as the fact that it has to occur uh, during an on-campus activity or a class or something like that. And Ohio University has to have quote unquote, substantial control over the respondent. Yes. Um, but if like, if you file a formal complaint and it is dismissed under Title IX, you can still repeal it, the decision, and um, the request to review must be sent to the Title IX coordinator within three days, and then the other party has three days to submit a rebuttal for that. So now let's go on to investigation which is actually kind of a shorter part of it, but I'm sure it takes a while. Um, So when there's an investigation happening, two investigators are assigned and they collect evidence, conduct interviews, try to figure out what happened. Um, All to be put together into what is called an investigative report. The investigative report is handed to the complainant and the respondent um prior to a hearing it's a draft of it so what they can do they can edit things add things on all that stuff and they have it for 10 days then they hand it back and then it is finalized and then it is given back along with and then the finalized version of the investigative report is handed back to the respondent and the Complainant. Complainant. Both both parties. Both parties, thank you. To both parties um, for 10 days minimum. And then we get right into the hearing. um, So before, actually before we get into the hearing, I just want to note that that's a minimum of 20 days um, between just those two steps. Right. Um, Because the investigation uh, before the report is finalized is 10 days. And then after the report is finalized, it's another 10 days. Yep. Um, but anyway, you can continue into the hearing now. Minimum of 20 days. Yes. Yeah. It's very, the thing that I really note about this is that it's all very kind of controlled. There's a specific amount of days, minimum days between each step for a lot of it. And you're going to see that really a lot when we get to the hearing. So um, no less than 10 days before a hearing, a notice of hearing is sent to both parties and then pre-hearing media, pre, excuse me, pre-hearing meetings are held at least five days before the hearing. So the hearing is heard by like a hearing panel. It consists of three panelists, um, a designated hearing chair, and then two others. Uh, All the people present at the hearing are going to be, there's going to be the panelists, of course, investigators, all people who are involved, witnesses, the advisors to the complainant and the respondent. And we can go over the hearing, um, what like what kind of happens in a hearing really quick let me go pull that up okay so here is the order of 
hearing how this is, excuse me, this is how the hearing is supposed to be conducted according to documents on the ECRC website. So the hearing chair begins discuss, um, be, begins the hearing by discussing expectations for the hearing. He, he or she will give a brief overview of the allegations and may ask investigators questions about anything that happened during the investigation. The complainant will be able to respond to the investigative report and the hearing panel can then ask complainant questions. Then the hearing panel will, will question the complainant and the respondent's advisor can question the complainant as well. Then after that, the, th the same thing happens for the respondent. They will be able to respond to the investigative report. The hearing panel can ask the respondent questions and then the hearing panel questions the respondent and then the complainant's advisor can also question the respondent. Then the hearing panel can call witnesses, ask the witnesses questions, and then the both of the advisors will be able to question the witnesses as well. Finally, both the respondent and the complainant will be able to make will be able to make summary statements near the end of the hearing. So after that, all evidence is presented. The hearing panel kind of deliberates. They're kind of like a jury. And then they make their decision on a majority vote. There's three of them. So two out of three, three out of three, sorry, two to one, three, zero, you know, whatever. Um, after they uh, make a decision, the hearing panel, they provide a statement of finding to the cut to the Title IX coordinator. So that kind of closes out the hearing section of the process. Now the hearing's over, the statement of finding has been sent to the Title IX coordinator. So after the hearing, the Title IX coordinator and the hearing chair prepare a notice of outcome. So it's gonna be a whole bunch of different things in like one document. It's, you know, final determination, just basically a summary of what had happened, what policies were violated, what steps were taken by Ohio University. This has to be submitted four days after the statement of finding is received. Within four days or like after four days? So it must be sent within four days of the statement of finding being received. The notice of outcome also contains information about potential sanctions. So what a sanction is, it's basically like the school disciplining um, the respondent. That's if the, uh, the panel finds the respondent guilty or that found that they had violated university policy or Title IX. So let me read this really quick, sorry. So there are different so there are different sanctions for university students and university uh, organizations versus university staff. So sanctions taken against students or student groups can include reprimand, uh, disciplinary probation, disciplinary suspension, and disciplinary expulsion. Uh, sanctions that can be taken against employees include censure, reprimand, suspension without pay, and uh, demotion and slash or loss of tenure. So that's basically being fired. Yeah. So um, that is in this notice of income. Finally, you can, the respondent and the complainant can appeal the notice of outcome. So if the appeal is granted, they get a new hearing, there's a new sanction, um, or the case will be remanded. If there is not an appeal or if the appeal is not granted, the findings of the process are final along with any sanctions laid out in the notice of outcome. All right. I think that about covers it. Do you have anything else you want to add? Just 
this is like a very rough kind of summary of what happens. This isn't everything in the utmost detail. This is very much like a skimming of a very long, very complicated and very, very time consuming process. So, you know, not everything in the utmost detail is covered here. So just, you know, always, if there's any questions, any concerns, definitely check out the ECRC website. Check out our reporting, my reporting, Bo's reporting is great. Um, check out Maddie's project. It's also great, you know, for more information or any questions or concerns. And that's a wrap for this episode of Athens Happens. Make sure to check out thenewpolitical.com for podcast episodes and other content. Thank you. And until next time.